Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Los Angeles Magazine podcast, an audible version of our print publication where you'll learn everything you need to know about the City of Angels this month and get an inside look at some of our biggest stories. I am Leslie Souter, the food editor, and today your humble guide through the pages of LA Mag. For our January issue, which we're celebrating this month, we explore the city's best new restaurants, talk about why Fluffy is in, and how aliens, the space kind, are invading the city. But before we get to all of that, it's time to ask Chris. Hi, my name is Ben. I'm 23 years old. I live in Hollywood. And I want to ask Chris, I smell delicious bread whenever I'm on the 101, just west of the Los Angeles River. Is there a bakery nearby? Well, I am glad to figure that out for you. So I, I actually went out and I, I rolled down the windows and I started sniffing. Lots of sniffing led to this place called Upper Crust. And it's a kind of a really anonymous tilt-up warehouse concrete building. But it's on the um, south side of the freeway near the river. And they make Japanese panko there, breadcrumbs. And they've been doing it for a long time. They have this big factory there where they... I, I signed an NDA, but I, I can tell you roughly that they... They make the panko by electrocuting giant loaves of dough. It was a long, elaborate story, but basically they just make bread and then they shred it up. And it's a special blend of, of techniques that creates the perfect panko because it's light and crispy and does great things with tempura, I guess. Okay, it's time to shop. I'm here with Linda Amidiato, our style editor. So Linda, what am I wearing in January? You are going to be really warm in January, so oh, let's hope El Nino really does kick off and it's insane because some one of the biggest trends is um, sort of fluffy, warm, pink angora, mohair. Ooh. And so we featured this really beautiful um, vest by Helmut Lang and it's Mongolian lamb fringe, which is all shows no signs of fading. So if you bought fringe straight through spring, um, but the, the the interesting thing about a furry, fuzzy vest is that in most places you actually can't wear that. Because it's going to get covered in like snow. And yeah, you want your arms covered. You want, you know, but in LA is like the one place where you could wear like a sleeveless sweater. Yeah. Furry vest, you can throw over even a tank top with a pair of jeans and you can keep your core warm. So we just like the idea of something fuzzy. I think we dream of like winter so that we can be warmer, but... So far, it's been chilly. So I know it's 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 we've had a few good cold days, and I do have to say there's something something retro about it too. At least in vest form, it's reminiscent of those great '60s like fur, not fur, but like fluffy sort yeah. of lambs wool. Yeah, that's also big shearling. Vest shearling. Yeah. Yes, there's a word for that. Um, why I'm not a fashion writer. <laughs> uh, so okay, I'm wearing I'm wearing something fluffy and soft. Is it about soft textures? Is it just it's all about, about textures? Okay. I think it's about sh- you know shearling and um, angora and so angora picks up the light so beautifully mohair the one photograph's also $1,300 so if you're wearing that <laughs> like to work god bless you <laughs> yeah, maybe in, maybe in Vogue there's yeah. some girls rocking that but uh, you know we saw um, this shearling trend lining jackets we saw Burberry did a trench coat that is completely made of shearling in it well, I'm going to run right out and get something fluffy yeah. immediately. Um, thank you so much, Linda. Thank you. Thank you. It is that time 
when our arts and culture editor, Mario Joachim, is here to tell me that it is January and exactly what am I supposed to do? Such a great question. There's so many things to do, but we've narrowed it down to three. Okay, what um, are three things that in January <laughs> that I should do? Assuming that I don't have much of a life and three things is all I can do. Sure. We would say the definitely you want to check out both of Catherine Opie's shows that are going on this month. She's doing two concurrent exhibitions. One okay, wait, the back up. Okay. Who is Catherine Opie? Catherine Opie. She is an extremely profound photographer who was born in Ohio. She moved here in the 80s and kind of came to the fore as an artist um, and a photographer by photographing LA's transgender and leather um, subculture of sadomasochistic lace and chains and transgender people and cool. gay people. Yeah, very interesting. Um, she had this incredible self-portrait of herself that was made famous in the 90s of her sitting there with just a tight leather mask on her face and she was bare-chested and she had actually carved the word pervert. I have seen, okay, I now know Catherine Opie. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, that's her. She's she's pretty incredible, but she also does a lot of landscapes. A lot of them are of L.A. I was going to say, do I bring the kid? Uh, you can bring the kid. <laughs> the, two, the two shows that are going on this month are a little tamer okay. than, um, than, than what made her famous in the 90s, but... The first show is actually a retrospective of Elizabeth Taylor's estate, and she got, yep, they, they shared You can't it. see this, but my eyes just bugged out of my head. <laughs> it's funny because they actually, the two of them share an accountant, so Elizabeth Taylor's accountant was like, hey, Kathy Opie, do you want to come photograph Elizabeth Taylor's house? And Kathy Opie was like, like any of us would be, she was like, yeah, accountant, I First do want to go do that. You know you're doing pretty well as a photographer when you share an accountant with Elizabeth Taylor. Oh yeah, 100%. It's like... <laughs> White diamonds all the way. Yeah, she's doing it. Um, so, so she went to Elizabeth Taylor's house. She spent six months there photographing everything from her blinged out cocktail dresses to she has this weird Pinocchio puppet next to a picture of her with Michael Jackson. Now, this was after her death, correct? This was actually during her... Oh, while she was still alive. Yeah, so it was three months into the project, three months into the six-month project, Kathy Opie was... She never photographed Elizabeth Taylor, but three months into the project, Elizabeth Taylor died. Oh. And then she finished out the project Hmm. for the next three months. Okay. Um, And so all of those projects have been kind of... Or all of those photos, I should say, have been whittled down into an exhibition that is opening at the MOCA, um, the West Hollywood outpost of mocha on january 23rd this sounds awesome yes it's pretty incredible and a sneak peek into the life of this screen icon that you know nobody ever got to see inside of that house you have sold me i want to go yeah once i go to the kathy opie show and i finish and i know all about elizabeth taylor and bondage Uh uh where do i go next then you go to the other kathy opie show (laughs) which is going on the same time opens january 22nd at the hammer but this is a more traditional portraits show so kathy opie is also known for her portraits and she had all these cultural luminaries sit down for these really theatrical lighting portraits of Rodarte and Jonathan Franzen and John Baldessari and just these insanely cool cultural people. Um, and they're really beautiful and just much a, a much different aspect of her work. They both are kind of different parts of her photography. So it's it's pretty cool that they're going on at the same time. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah. Okay, so I've been out and about on the town. I did yep. something arty. Now mm-hmm. I just want to sit on the couch and watch TV. Yeah, you're feeling lazy. So 100% you should definitely check out it's called Colony. It's USA's new TV show. It's from the lost producer Carlton ah, Cuse. Sorry. I know. Ah. I know. He's back. It's not J.J. Abrams, but it's Carlton Cuse. He's busy, I heard. He's busy. He's, you know, he's doing some sort of intergalactic. Who knows? I don't know. I don't know. But Colony is this TV show that is premiering, and it's about aliens who have invaded Los Angeles. It's post 
invasion and what Los Angeles looks like after it's been colonized by this race of aliens. So we're all, like, we're over the fact that, oh my god, there's aliens right. here. Yeah, this takes place like a year after we're, you know, oh my god, there's aliens here, and now a year later it's like, there's no cars, Los Angeles has been confined to bike commuting, yep. So the aliens maybe maybe made our lives a little better? Maybe. In the show, we don't feel that way. Okay. But, um... They, they're just kind of taking over everything, and, and the show is about the resistance, what drives and what inspires resistance. So in the show, there are people who go along with what the aliens do, and then there are the Angelinos who are like, hell to the no, not standing for this. So this is a, a drama? It's a drama. Okay. So I watched a bunch of TV, my mm-hmm. eyes are tired. Yeah. Now I just want to shut them and I want to turn on something good and I want to listen to it. Yeah. What am I listening to in January? There is a great show that is happening. It's with uh, Jenny Lewis and M. Ward and the Watson Twins. And that's going on January 29th and 30th at Emanuel Presbyterian Church. But what's cool is you can kind of double dip because M. Ward also has an album coming out in February that's very exciting called More Rain. That was, I don't know if you guys know M. Ward, but he's the the him to the she of she and him with Zoe Deschanel. And um, he's also just a great singer-songwriter, and his whole new album is very inspired by um, the Pacific Northwest, where he was born in California, but he has lived in Portland for the past 15 or so years. So a lot of it is very good for a rainy day. So considering El Nino is here, it would probably be a good, good, easy listening. That sounds lovely and yeah. right up my alley. Yeah. Um, okay, well, I feel completely equipped to take on the city. But my favorite part of uh, each mag- each month's due section um, in Los Angeles Magazine is the Spitfire Q&As uh, that you, Marielle, do with somebody uh, talented in the entertainment space. Right. Um, so who did you get a chance to sit down with this month? This month, um, well, I, I had a chance to sit down with her via phone. Okay. But, um, <laughs> we, uh, we spoke with Cameron Esposito this month, who you guys might know. Um, she hosts a weekly podcast called Put Your Hands Together at Upright Citizens. Pod- Podcast. Hey. How dare you listen to other podcasts? So meta. Um, she hosts that at Upright Citizens Brigade every Tuesday, the one on Franklin. Um, but she's also starring in a brand new show on CISO, which is NBC's new comedy streaming service, um, called Take My Wife with her fiance Rhea Butcher, who all, who she also hosts the podcast with. So she something so great. You can go do it. It's every week that you guys can go check her out at Upright Citizens Brigade. In this interview, we asked her to talk about everything from formal denim outfits and burritos and her side mullet and just a lot of really fun stuff. LA comedians, dead or alive, who'd be on your ideal set list? Joan Rivers, Alexander at The Rock, and me. I think The Rock is very funny, and he would be great if he would just try stand-up comedy. But he'd have to work at it for 10 to 15 years, because nobody gets any break. LA clothing trend you wish came in denim? Three-piece suit. Only Justin Timberlake and Britney Spears have ever tried to do denim formal wear, and their denim cowboy hats were amazing. I feel like it's ready for a comeback. Name for your late-night show that would never be network-approved. The name of that would never be network-approved. <laughs> Giving it to you tonight. With Cameron Esposito. Or Cameron Esposito is giving it to you tonight. LA stand-up comedy crush? Maria Bamford, uh-huh. Sarah Silverman. And Sarah Silverman. It is a tie. They have the best jokes in the biz. Okay, which is more dangerous, Terminator Skynet or being a woman on the internet? Oh my god. Men's rights activists are Skynet. They already happened. The machines have taken over. Dream Angelino, who would write the foreword to your book? 
Probably Angelina. I want her to write a really long thing about how, like, I was really formative in her discovery of her sexuality. I feel like it's high time she finally was honest with herself. Whose line is it, anyway? It's probably the fat Jews. Like, I mean, it's not his, but he's definitely telling you it is. <laughs> All right, awesome. You slayed that. Amazing. Thanks, man. You're the, you're the best. All right, talk to you soon. All right, bye. That was hilarious. She sounds awesome. Thank you so much, Marielle. I feel completely equipped to take on January. Good, me too. What? I don't know. Let's cut that part out. (laughs) (laughs) I am here with uh, associate editor Chris Nichols, also uh, the expert on all things Los Angeles, uh, kitsch, history, and really any detail you would ever want to know or sometimes not want to know about the city of L.A., uh, I'm fortunate enough to have him in my office to share with me uh, the buzz of the month of January. So, Chris, tell me, what's the buzz? Well, the buzz is Taco Bell. <gasps> Taco Bell number one, specifically. Um, the old store from 1962 was sitting in Downey, uh, abandoned, boarded up, and uh, about to be demolished. And the company, the Taco Bell company, uh, came in and picked it up and took it away. They, what do you mean they picked it up and <laughs> took it away? Well, uh, rather than see it be destroyed, they put it on a truck and they towed it down to Irvine to their corporate headquarters, about 40 miles away, and it's just sitting there for a while, but it's going to become some sort of uh, some sort of operation down there in, in Irvine. They're not sure what it's going to be yet. Not, they don't know, maybe a museum or maybe a place. I mean, will we be able to visit it still? Well, you know, it's out there by the flagpole, so I guess if you're in, if you're in Irvine, you can go see it, but they're soliciting uh, vision from their customers right now. So I guess you could submit your request for what you think it ought to be. I went down there for the move. You know, people gathered around. It was a big scene in Downey. People were very emotional about losing their landmark and, and then, but saving it at the same time. Um, so I, I'm helping a guy take pictures. I'm taking pictures. We got our back to the thing. And, and you know, who pays attention to buildings moving and it starts rolling towards us and they had to leap out of the way of the moving Taco Bell. <laughs> oh no, we almost lost Chris Nichols to Taco Bell. Yeah. And it wasn't because you ate too many too many tacos. No, it would have been a, a good a good good way to go for someone in preservation, I suppose, but it was still scary. <laughs> um, so what's now in the original's place? What's is there anything in Downey? Dirt dirt lot, but you know, Downey is the great fast food uh, origin story, you know, the 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 great uh, world's oldest McDonald's still there at Florence and Lakewood uh, with a little museum. I recommend a visit. Uh, the great uh, um, Harvey's Broiler, Johnny's Broiler, Bob's Big Boy Broiler is now uh, serving up uh, hamburgers under the car hop canopy. Um, they're on Firestone Boulevard. And, um, you know, Downey is a great little perfect 50s time capsule of uh, all these little little neat fast food nuggets. McNuggets. There you go. <laughs> um, perfect. Well, uh, I'll be sure to, to get down to Irvine as quick as I can to pay my respects to the original Taco Bell. Yeah, Thank you. Tell, tell them what you think it ought to be. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. Sure. Hey, I am here with now with the editor-in-chief of Los Angeles Magazine, my boss, the head honcho, Mary Melton, who is here to introduce a new feature to the magazine for the January issue. Mary, what is the big read? Well, every month in the magazine, we tend to highlight something about L.A. that we go really deep into. This could be an investigative piece about the sheriff's department. You know, this could be a piece unraveling a famous murder mystery in L.A., who killed Bugsy Siegel. In this month, we have a piece that's about 
a very peculiar murder spree that's been happening in Palos Verdes. It's a terrific piece by Mike Kessler, which explores this neighborhood division over the wild feral peacocks that are everywhere in Palos Verdes and also in Arcadia too. And they have been slowly disappearing. They've been murdered. And murder most foul, as mm -hmm. we call it, and no pun intended, of course. And they have um, been dropping dead. And there is perhaps a couple of suspects in mind. Some people love living with peacocks every day. Other people hate them. They are very, very loud. Um, they're beautiful. I think they're awesome to look at as a tourist when I'm in Palos Verdes and Arcadia, but I don't know if I'd love living with them, but I certainly wouldn't be shooting them and beating them to death, so which is, is what's happening. Is, so I was going to ask, so, you know, they're dropping dead, but it, it seems that there is some foul play. There involved. is absolutely foul play involved, and Mike is a great reporter, and he really dives into the subculture of this unique area in the city that is both wild itself and very rich. And we all live with wildlife every day. If you live in Los Angeles, you pass coyotes, you hear roosters perhaps in your neighbor's yard. You know, I've got raccoons in my kitchen on occasion. Mm -hmm. Like this is a part of living in the wild, which LA is still in many ways much more wild than New York. So this is a deep dive into a certain kind of neighborhood that we don't always get to see through this perspective. And to also see the crazy characters who live in this very rural area that you may not know about a lot about this peninsula kind of, you know, that's, that's between Long Beach and beach cities. Um, it's a really cool little look at something that surprised the hell out of me. We just gave it to him as an assignment of, we want to write about peacocks. And he came back saying, oh, I found out a lot more about peacocks <laughs> than you can possibly imagine. And we've even slugged this on our on the cover as the big read. Since we do these every single month, we want to really you know, let people know, like in this month's issue, you're going to fall into a story and come out with a whole surprising look at LA. Well, I can't wait to find out who done it to the peacocks. So can we. Thank you. Okay, you've made it. We are to the cover story of the January issue of Los Angeles Magazine. Cue the trumpets, uh, or in this case, the uh, fork and knife clanking, because our cover story this month is the city's best new restaurants, which we do every January. Uh, I have here with me our restaurant critic, Patrick Q, who was going to be talking to us about the uh, most exciting newcomers in the food scene today. So how was this year? But tell me why why this why this little gem called the bellwether made your Well list. before you can you can eat very well in the valley. Always. The, the 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 delis, uh, you know, arts, I would cross the city to have a corned beef sandwich at arts. Sushi. A sushi, of course. And I think the great thing about the bellwether which is pretty near Arts on, on Ventura Boulevard, is that uh, Chef Ted Hobson and his sister-in-law, Anne-Marie Verdi, who's actually a great uh, beer uh, connoisseur, the things you find out when you're researching this, I mean, she, she worked in a London pub for three years pulling pints for you know the English, so that, she really knows her. No one knows how to pull a pint like the British. <laughs> so in any case, I mean, he, he's worked for David Lefebvre at the Water Grill. He worked for Sang Yoon at Father's Office. They really understand volume and quality and the intersection of those two things. And it's a low-key place. You know, I go in as a blank slate. What's this place going to be, my first visit? But ultimately, you have to see, well, what's, what, what's your vision? And there's this precise, well-executed, lyrical at times, welcoming, all the kind of subtle things that 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 um, are easy to talk about and 
you know, hard to execute. What style of cuisine are we talking here? You know, it's not it's not necessarily Italian. It's not you know, is it is it New American? Is it California? What, um, you know, I a bunch of hyphens, yeah. Okay. Um, market driven, like he will not have tomatoes in his puttanesca once the tomatoes are you know are uh, I, over. Yeah. God no, uh, he won't. Um, but it's also bar and grill. Uh, get the food out quickly. Have a level of comfort. It's not the cerebral. It's very straight ahead. Good American food. So, okay, so we're moving from the valley. Let's maybe head into the city more. There's a restaurant from two chefs whose names we know well um, in Los Angeles, John Shook and Vinny DiTolo. They opened what I think they meant to be like a neighborhood pizzeria, um, but it kind of is something else entirely. Tell me a bit about John and Vinny's. Well, it's clearly intended to be a neighborhood pizzeria. The the, the sort of Kelly Green uh, pizza boxes are stacked high. They do takeout. It's, it's these two guys who are great chefs who every one of their restaurants is going to be crowded for, for very good reasons. They they cook really well. Here, here they were doing a bit differently. They were open. They were going to be open for for breakfast, which they hadn't done before. They, they want to be that destination that you don't think too much about because you know it's going to be great, and you, and you just say, hey, let's go there. Uh, they make a great uh, salad of ribbons of zucchini with, with uh, pepato, a, a sheep's milk cheese that's studded with peppercorns. That's all it needs, a little olive oil. Do you think Do you think it's an evolution for them? I think it's it's very good that this opened before Trois Familia. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is their new place in Silver Lake. Right. Because I, I, they sort of established a new, it's a new departure for them. Mm-hmm. You know, when they had Animal, it was two guys, incredibly, you know, robust, lusty, uh, reduced sauces. That, <laughs> then they opened Son of a Gun. Uh, okay, they, they changed the, the, the focus to fish. With this restaurant, they reestablished themselves. We want to be the place you eat. We may not be the guys behind the stove. We trust the people behind the stove. We've established a new form of hospitality. It is, um, and it's it's right on Fairfax where there's no no dearth of dining, but um, it is sort of a unique perspective for that part of town. Yeah. Um, let's move on. Um, I want to talk about, so this year, every year we pick um, a dish of the year, where it's just a dish that for various reasons either represents sort of the best of of you know cuisine in Los Angeles today. It's not necessarily the most complicated dish or the most ambitious dish, but it's just a dish that, um, as I think when I was talking to you and trying to, to just help you decide, I said, close your eyes and just think of the one dish that you want to have again right now. And this was the dish that made your list. Tell me a bit about the dish of the year. Um, okay, this is from Ray Garcia in Broken Spanish Dantan. He's a great chef. Um, he is, uh, it's funny that there's a language component to the name of the restaurant because it, it is about being articulate in many different kind of culinary languages. Um, and uh, he is, he is uh, <laughs> despite the name of the restaurant, he's an incredibly articulate chef. This one is a camote, a, a sweet potato, which he cooks in a, a syrup of piloncillo, which is that um, kind of triangle of sugar, Mexican sugar. Just little brown cones. Yes, exactly. And this itself harps to a tradition of of Mexican candy making, uh, which is cactuses, uh, sweet potato, uh, squash. Uh, so the the sweet with the potato makes her perfect Mexican point of view. Then he he makes this incredible braise of pig parts essentially uh, snout ears and but at the base of these braising juices are are you know dry chilies that he's sort of toasted in a pan to start with so they've released their oils so that's there's that 
a little bit of a heat. Yes, uh, I'll be really obnoxious and say the grammar of the dish. <laughs> <laughs> the grammar of the dish has been laid down by the chili heat, and that's the sort of foundation of the sauce. So when, when the two things come together, there's the incredible execution of the braising juices. And here you are, you're sitting two blocks from Staples Center having this fabulously complex and yet completely direct dish. I spoke to Ray Garcia about this dish and he said, you know, when it really comes together, he was trying to find a way to take that really sweet childhood treat um, of these Mexican sugar-soaked sweet potatoes and try to give it a bit more balance. And I think, um, yeah, it's uh, it's... It, it tastes naughty, I'll put it that way. It's one of those. It's uh, it, it, it has right. something very sultry about yeah. it. Well, I don't want to give away the rest of the list okay. uh, because I want people to pick up the January issue and have a reason to. But if there's one more restaurant on this list that you think um, we need to talk about, um, can be number one, we, or we can save that. It can be... Uh, yeah, let's say number list. four because I think it's such a departure. When, mm-hmm. when, when, we, when I say my criteria is originality, consistency, and uh, quality, um, you know, this one sort of is a clear example of that, particularly the originality. Um, you know, Quinn and Karen Hatfield, they arrived in Los Angeles about 15 years ago, and they were going to do fine dining with Hatfields. Mm-hmm. And they came, even for... Th- what a novel notion today. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, they'd worked for Von Gerichten in New York, they'd worked for Boulay, they'd worked for Gramercy Tavern. And they they went from a tiny hole in the wall on Beverly to the old citrus place on Melrose. They gave it their best shot, and something wasn't quite clear. Mm-hmm. And it became clear with Otis and Penelope, which is a fire-driven, wood-fire-driven, much more casual restaurant, where Quinn Hatfield, this is such a paradox, the subtlety of his cooking has become clearer the less he does to it. I mean, I can't quite explain that, but there are certain dishes in, in our, just the way he prepares meat on a whole host of, uh, of, of grilling methods that he has. He's got churrascos, he's got the Santa Maria grill, he's got a Texas smoker. I mean, if, if it can be cooked with wood fire, he's doing it. In Quinn, something really clear about his cooking came out with, with this restaurant. You know, it's it's funny. I always say that the test of a, of a chef, you know, a, a barbecue pit can make or break a, a chef just because you are, um, you have four-star credentials or Michelin stars, whatever. Working live fire is something completely different, right. especially on some of the... He has... If you look in the kitchen, he has these sort of grills on pulleys oh, yeah, and sure. things that looks very archaic. So to be able to... It, just because you know how to, you know, make a hamachi crudo croque madame or whatever he was doing at, <laughs> at, right. at Hatfield's um, doesn't mean that you can necessarily make a, a beautiful beef short rib that just like dissolves mm-hmm. um, yeah. in a way and he, and he does so yeah. I it's um, it's interesting to watch the evolution of two of LA's greatest chefs yeah exactly um, well thank you so much Patrick I'm hungry okay. um, uh, and you know until next year everybody okay. um, uh, happy eating okay thank you Leslie thanks As we reach the end of our podcast, we turn to the final page of our oral magazine, uh, The Time Frame. And who do I have with me in my office to discuss? We are back with Chris Nichols, associate editor, who also picks all the uh, vintage photos for the real time frame that appears in the magazine each month. But today he's going to give us a bit of uh, another time frame that you can listen to. So what what's uh, what should I be thinking about in terms of kooky L.A. history this month? Well, kooky, how about cookies? Uh, oh! oh, Wally Amos, uh, the guy that started famous Amos Cookies and had a really cool store on the Sunset Strip. The first sort of uh, gourmet 
cookies, the first, uh, you know, it's so funny nowadays to think about the, the origins of artisan products, you know, like this, but that we have today everywhere. But um, Amos made these little two-inch chocolate chip cookies that um, gave them out to his clients. He was a music guy that I wanted to get permission to use. And, and lo and behold, the next day I get a box of cookies on my desk. And so I actually had a little taste test here with some of the staff. And, I was uh, among them. Yeah, brought bought some Famous Amos out of the vending machine and, and then mixed it up with the new Cookie Kahuna, which is, I guess, like the original Famous Amos. Am Amos, at the height of its success, sold out and sold out and sold out. And it went out, you know, it went to several different companies until it's now owned by Kellogg's. Okay. And, you know, they have a very mechanical way of making these things. And, you know, it's got to last. And it's funny, the, the bag from the vending machine has an expiration date in next summer. And, you know, and Wally Amos's cookies, you know, expire in a couple weeks. But, I mean, the ingredients are butter and sugar and chocolate chips and things that you would recognize. Uh, well, is there a way? So, let's say I wanted to sample a cookie kahuna cookie here in Los Angeles. Is there a way to do so? Yeah, well, you can go to my blog on LAMag.com and get the link there. <laughs> or just Or just Google cookie kahuna and... Uh, and there's a little picture of Wally Amos dancing around in the package, and, and, and they're really, really good. If you want a little tiny chocolate chip cookie. Uh, and a glass of milk on the side, please. Okay, you've made it to the end of the magazine. Thank you guys so much for joining us for our January issue podcast. Join us again for next month's February issue, where we will be talking about apartment living, whiskey, and everyone's favorite mad scientist slash jazz musician, Jeff Goldblum. We hear he sings, so stay tuned for that. <laughs>